Lord God, we praise you this morning for opportunities to trust you. God, we praise you that you, as our Father, have led us into many different things this week in order that we might learn to trust you more. God, we thank you for your word that it continually indicates to us that it is the righteous who live by faith. God, that the righteousness that we have received in Jesus Christ is seen and and evidenced in a life of faith. A life that hopes for things not seen, but things promised and things sealed by the blood of Jesus. God, so this morning we pray as a congregation, not just as individuals, but together as a congregation, God, that you would continue to give us opportunities to learn to trust you. Even as a group of people who have been uh, brought together by, by, by the Holy Spirit this morning, God, would you give us together opportunities to trust you, to grow more deeply in our understanding of who you are. God, would you give us opportunities to do good, and God, would we not grow weary in doing that good? God, but would we we continue to pursue it as those who have been freed, as those who have been made whole, as those who have been made right with our Creator because of Jesus. God, so this morning as we turn to your word, would you shape us, God, would you form us into that which you desire for us to be, both as people and as a church. God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. Would you take your Bible with me this morning and turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 this morning. We're all together this morning, worshiping together as, as families, uh, and uh, that's always an exciting, exciting morning. And some parents, if you have young children, that might not mean that you miss large chunks of the sermon. That's okay. Um, it's part of being a parent, and I want to commend you all that having your children together here in congregational worship with you is, is absolutely essential in your parenting. So moms and dads, take your Bibles and have them open on your lap. Encourage your children. Have them read along with you if they can read the sermon text this morning. Point out things to them that you're noticing on the drive home and around the lunch table today. Um, and and show show them that the worship of God's people is to be of utmost priority for, for families. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 47. We're going to read through the end of the chapter, verse 57, 11 verses here. Um, before we dive in, um, many of you spent the course of the last nine months reading through the Bible. Um, that's lovely, and, and maybe you made it all the way, and the end of that Bible reading plan was on, uh, was on, was today, it's today. Um, and, uh, today is what? The 29th. That's right, the 29th. It's the 29th. So if you're wrapping up today, you're reading Psalm 119, and you're reading that Psalm in its entirety, all 200 and whatever verses, I, how many verses is in it? Um, and then you're asking, what do I do next? What do I do next? Well, um, there are some printouts in the back. 
Uh, and there's another plan for you over the course of the summer to just read through the New Testament. And I think there are a couple repeats here. Um, but d- uh, June, July, August starts on June 1st. Go ahead and pick one of these up um, if you haven't already. Um, and you'll see readings for each day. The beauty of this plan that we've done for some time now is that it's a six-day plan. So you read for six days, and then you take Sunday off, and you come and you come to church, and we together as a congregation then um, worship together, and we look together at God's word, um, and so that serves as your uh, as your intake for the day. But then every once in a while, you'll have a catch-up day built in where you can go back, and if you've fallen behind, you can catch up, or it gives you a handful of other things to read for that day if you happen to be, happen to be caught up. Um, when you're engaging with a Bible reading plan, it's always good to remember that you're not behind if you're reading the Bible today. If you're reading the Bible today, you might feel like, oh, shoot, I'm, I'm in June and it's July, the end of July. It's okay. Pick up where, you, where, where the plan has you. You're never behind if you're in God's word for that, that day. Okay, so let's go to the Bible together. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 47. I'm going to read through verse 57. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near, uh, near the wilderness, in a, tall, in a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Nothing puts you on the defensive in, in a conversation or makes you tense up in a conversation quite like the words, don't take this the wrong way, but... Um, because you're always wondering, you're wondering then immediately what's, ha- what's coming after that phrase. What intensely personal flaw is about to be pointed out um, after, after that? No, don't take this the wrong way, but you're a, bit, you're a bit of a jerk. Don't take this the wrong way, but you, you, you might smell uh, a little funny today. Don't take, you can fill in the blank what, what would be something that would stir up a little, bit of, a little bit of fear in you after the phrase. Now, don't take this the wrong way, but... There's, like, there's also a, a, a function that happens after you hear something like that. You say, now don't take this the wrong way. But, but like 99.9% of the time, if you hear those words, you're going to probably take it the wrong way. This is what we would call a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
A quick Google search will give you a, a definition of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And a self-fulfilling prophecy, an individual's expectations about another person or entity eventually result in the other person or entity acting in ways that confirms the expectations. So le- leveling the expectation that the person you're speaking to shouldn't take what you're about to say the wrong way inevitably results in them taking it the wrong way. It's like telling someone, don't think about pink element, elephants, and then all they can think about is, is pink elephants. Throughout Scripture, throughout the Bible, God takes people who are actively opposed to his plans and purposes in the world, and he uses them to speak or act on his behalf. People who are hostile towards God and what he is doing in and around them, um, God takes them and uses them for his purposes. This is an interesting phenomenon. Despite these people's intentions, what they say or do is used by God to bring about what he desires. Paul in Galatians 6 verse 7, he writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. God is not mocked. There are two important ideas as we approach this text this morning that I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we think about it. There are 11 verses here, and as we consider them all this morning, I want you to think in the back of your mind of two ideas. First, People are totally responsible for their wickedness. The intentions of their heart that lead them into sin, people who actively oppose God's will in the world, they are totally responsible for that activity. If they're walking actively down the path of sin, they are responsible for that. You and I are responsible for the action that we take um, that is sinful and opposed to God. That's the first thing. People are totally responsible for their wickedness. Second thing to keep in mind. Even where people speak and act wickedly, choosing to consistently and habitually um, sin against God, God still uses their words and their actions to accomplish His purposes. Even where people speak and act wickedly, choosing to consistently and habitually sin against God, God still uses their words and actions to accomplish his purposes. You'll remember that leads us to this text where we, last time we were in John's Gospel, was Easter Sunday. You'll remember that Jesus famously says, uh, leading up to this text, that he is both the resurrection and the life. And And then after he says that, he calls Lazarus. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And so things then are coming to a head. This is a pretty robust sign that Jesus does, calling someone who has been dead for four days out of the grave. That's a that's a phenomenal supernatural event. So things are coming to a head, and these 11 verses that we're looking at this morning is, the, is the, the chief priests and the Pharisees responding to these signs that Jesus is doing and has been doing throughout John's gospel. The chief priests and Pharisees need a solution to their Jesus problem. 
So Caiaphas shows up, and he's the high priest that year, we were told. And he explicitly, he explicitly proposes eliminating Jesus. Because he says here, it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that a whole nation should perish. And we see again uh, at the end of the passage, in, or in, in the middle of the passage in verse 53, so from that day on they made plans to put him to death. God, God is not going to allow these men, though, to derail his purposes. In fact, he's going to use them to bring about and accomplish his purposes. Caiaphas speaks, John tells us, not in a, on his own accord, but on, in God's accord. In accord with God's plan, despite his wicked intentions. He says what will actually happen. One man will die for the nation. And John tells us that Jesus would die for the nation. Not just the nation of Israel, but but for the whole world. So it's almost like saying, don't take this the wrong way, but this Jesus, he's going to die. And Caiaphas would say, say to save the nation from Romans... But God says to save the whole world from much bigger enemies. A universal enemy. A ongoing, at what seemed to this point never-ending enemy. Sin and death. So there are a couple ideas that I want to work out of this text this morning that I want you to see as we look more deeply here. And the first is, we're just going to call it the seat of scoffers. Because I read that, that verse from Galatians 6 a moment ago where it says very clearly, God is not mocked. In our ESV translation, uh, one who mocks we would call a scoffer. That's a scoffer. If someone, we don't really use that word very often, but if someone is a scoffer, it's someone who mocks something or someone. We're told in Psalm 1 that the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers is blessed. And again, that lines up with Paul's words in Galatians 6-7, because at the uh, Galatians 6-7, you'll see, um, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers that Psalm 1 talks about is fully realized in the person of Jesus. So Paul, when he says, whatever one sows, he will also reap, he's saying, conscience decisions to, uh, to do evil brings evil. And conscious decisions to honor God in obedience brings blessing. And Jesus is the full realization of that second, that second reality. A conscious decision to honor God in obedience in everything. Jesus sowed in perfect obedience to his heavenly Father, and he reaps eternal blessing, not only for himself, but from all who turn from their sin and trust in him. In Christ, we can sow obedience to God, living joyfully as 
his children. So in our passage this morning, um, we see the chief priests and we see the Pharisees. They're sitting in the seat of scoffers. They're doing the opposite of the one who does not sit in the seat of scoffers and is blessed that David talks about in Psalm 1. They sit in the seat of scoffers because they refuse to see Jesus for who he is, the eternal son of God, the word of God who took on flesh. They refuse to see Jesus as one with the Father, as God himself. And they refuse to see Jesus for who he is, and so they plot against him. Look at verse 47. They, the, the, the chief priests of the Pharisees, they, they ask this question, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're they're worried about losing their way of life. That's what they're worried about. They're worried about losing their way of life. The signs and miracles that Jesus is doing has drawn a lot of attention of people in the nation of Israel. But the reality is that that also is going to draw the attention of the Romans. Because as we move into chapter 12 in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that the people want to make Jesus king. And that is going to be a direct affront or seen as a direct affront to Roman occupation. They're worried about losing their way of life. Jesus threatened the power of the religious leadership. Yes, the chief priests and the Pharisees. But to draw the eye of Rome would mean increased oppression. Caesar was the only king. Caesar was Lord, according to the Romans. And anyone claiming power, anyone with anyone who the people would want to make king, Rome would shut down quickly. The religious leaders were afraid that their status quo, and they're living under the radar, flying under the radar of, of the Romans, would quickly be disrupted. But the religious leaders missed something important, that Jesus' kingship, Jesus' kingship would be an eternal kingship. David was promised by God that one would sit on his throne forever. Jesus will sit on David's throne forever and is sitting there even now. Rome may have been a big, big and scary, but Jesus' kingship wasn't just a rogue province in the ancient world trying to break out from underneath Roman rule. It's a divine and everlasting kingship. Not subject to political machinations or movements, but a kingship that all earthly powers must submit to. Jesus Christ's kingship is a kingship that all earthly powers must submit to. Proverbs 15.12. Back to this idea of the scoffer. Proverbs 15.12 says, A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. So the one who mocks God, like the chief priests and the Pharisees here in our text, the one who mocks God does not like to have their faults highlighted. That's what it means to be reproved, is to have your your shortcomings, your faults, your flaws highlighted. The chief priests and Pharisees 
were getting ready to double down on their position about Jesus. They thought, this guy needs to be dealt with. He needs to be killed. We're going to take him out. Because, because we have been opposed to him for so long, it's time to double down on this position and eliminate him so that our way of life will not be threatened anymore. So what's their greatest fault in all of that? What's their greatest fault in what they plan to do here? The greatest fault is that they could not see Jesus for who he truly is and who he had been revealing himself to be for 11 chapters of John's gospel to this point. Jesus highlights who he is according to the scripture. He does this time and time again. We've been exploring this in John's gospel. He highlights who he is. He highlights the fact that he's the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He highlights that he's the long-awaited Messiah. He highlights that he is all-satisfying, the bread of life. He highlights that he is the one who has power over sin and death in calling Lazarus out of the grave and proclaiming with his mouth that he is the resurrection and life. We could go on and on. He highlights the fact that he is God. He highlights the fact that he is one with the Father. But the religious leaders reject all of these claims and even in moments in their their anger have picked up stones to attempt to stone Jesus. And now they're getting smart. They're saying, okay, so he's eluded us to this point. Now it's time to make a plan. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Their errors are put on display, but they cannot see them because they rejected the word of God and they rejected wisdom, ready, fully ready to sit down, to plop their behinds down in the seat of scoffers. The chief priests and Pharisees then stand in contrast to the wise because those who are wise love reproof. That sounds like a, it's a weird way to say that, but consider Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. King David says it like this in Psalm 19.12. He says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. David, King David, longed for God to reveal in him, to expose his faults through God's word so that he could turn and live according to God's word. He desired deeply to see his faults highlighted before him in order that he could turn away from them and go the other way. Reproof is another word we don't use very often. But again, to have our highlights or our our faults highlighted is not something that we as people often enjoy. How can we as people, together with King David, say, Declare me innocent from him. Who can discern his errors? How can we say that we want to live wisely and then every time a fault or a Sin is pointed out in our lives to grow frustrated and defensive. We don't always like reproof. In fact, I would venture to say that the majority of the time, we're actively opposed to it. We don't like for those faults and those failures and those sins to be exposed, pointed out. But according to King David, 
It's a gift. It is a gift. It's a gift to have our our faults highlighted. Because the ultimate effect is that we would turn to God as the only one who can do what David says in Psalm 19, declare us innocent. There is nothing that we can do to declare ourselves innocent from hidden faults. So bring them to light because it's the only way that we can be washed clean. The reproof that God's word brings to us, the reproof that that comes to us when we genuinely see Jesus for who he is, that we can't live up to God's standard when we see the standard that God has set, and then we look at ourselves and we say, I can't meet it. We're driven to turn to a holy God who sent His Son to die so that we might live. So that we might be washed clean. It's only the blood of Jesus that can wash us clean, that can declare us innocent of hidden faults. But to disregard or to avoid reproof, to downplay or ignore the sin that is so prevalent within us, is to mock God, is to sit in the seat of scoffers, is to deny who God reveals Himself to be in Scripture. So we must guard ourselves then With the help of God, according to the Holy Spirit, we must guard ourselves against being like a scoffer. Which means, in everything together as God's people, we must pray, like David, that God would show us our hidden faults. That God would expose in us what is sinful, what is prideful, what we're holding on to. In the deep, dark corners of our heart, in order that we might turn to God. And be washed clean. And it means also this. That in every situation. Every circumstance you find yourself in. Every thought that you have. Everything that transpires in your life. The most important question to always be asking is. Who is God and who is Jesus Christ? The reality of who God is informs everything that we say and do. The chief priests and Pharisees did not see who Jesus truly was. They refused to see him for who he truly was. And because they answered that question incorrectly, because they answered the question, who is God and who is Jesus Christ incorrectly, they found themselves on the wrong side of it, making plans to execute the Son of God. But, God is not mocked. These men, totally responsible for their actions, their sins, the murder that had been brewing inside of them and would be manifest in a few short chapters here in John's gospel. All of this is going on and yet God is not mocked. They sit in the seat of scoffers, but God 
is not mocked. And that's the second thing I want you to see this morning. In Proverbs 21.1, says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So in verse 49, we meet Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest that year. Caiaphas is not a king, but he's a man of substantial influence. Being the high priest was, didn't mean you were a slouch. He had substantial power, substantial influence. Now, he says something that I would put me on the defensive also in verse 49. He says, you know nothing at all, which is, which is kind of harsh, but, but that's the way that they talk to each other. So he says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He's not saying this. The very next verse says that he's not saying this of his own accord. The point is this. The direction of those in power and the direction that they take is always directed by God. We'll consider those words that Caiaphas speaks in a moment, but there are a couple other examples in Scripture that I want to give you. I just want to lay them out because this happens over and over and over again in Scripture. Consider Pharaoh in Egypt when, when, the, when, when Moses comes and says, let my people go, and, and, then, and then Pharaoh hardens his heart over and over and over again to the reality that God is actively working against him because he sees the signs. He sees the ten plagues come upon Egypt. He continually hardens his heart and does not let, his people, let, let God's people go. God uses Pharaoh's hard heart like a stream of water in his hand. He shows that his power, Pharaoh, that God's power, and even the most powerful of earthly leaders like Pharaoh cannot stop God from delivering his people. That should be great encouragement to us. There is no earthly power that can stop God's purposes and plans. The free gift of salvation comes to us despite what earthly leaders would say or do. Another example in scripture, one that I love, is Balaam. This is probably a, well less, uh, a less well-known example. Um, so if you know Balaam, Balaam has a donkey, right? You, maybe you've heard this story. But Balak, king of Moab, wants Balaam to go and curse Israel because Balak is afraid of Israel. Balak, the king of Moab, heard about the deliverance out of Egypt. And so Balak says, let's go curse that group of people for me, Balaam. I'm saying Balak and Balaam. That sounds a lot alike. I didn't realize that until I started saying it. So Balaam is going to agree to what Balak requests. But on his way, Balaam's donkey sees an angel of the Lord in the path. Now Balaam doesn't see it with his eyes. He doesn't see the angel. And so he hits the donkey and that happens three times. So Balaam is just trying to get where he's going so that he can curse this people that the king sent him to curse, and then his donkey isn't cooperating. And Balaam says that he wishes he had a sword. He says this. He says, I wish that I had a sword so I could kill you, stupid donkey. But then, but then the donkey turns to Balaam and speaks, and he, um, he hits him with some really sound logic. He says, this is Numbers 22, 30. He says, and the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey 
on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, Balaam said, no. (laughs) If my donkey turned around and he says no. Like, hey, you're right. Thanks for bringing your resume up again. It's, it's really, it's a robust one. You did a great job. You've always done a great job. You've been a great donkey. You're right. I shouldn't kill you. Balaam's donkey is nothing if not a consistent donkey. The angel of the Lord then appears to Balaam after his donkey speaks to him. Balaam sees his error. And he says, well, I I should turn around. The angel of the Lord tells Balaam to go. To go to the people of Israel and to speak only what he, the angel of the Lord, tells Balaam to speak. So, long story short, Balaam's on this quest to go curse Israel. And through the speech of a donkey and the angel of the Lord appearing to him, He now goes to Israel and pours out blessing on them. Instead of cursing them, like Balak commanded. And he pours out three blessings on Israel, and Balak is mad. Numbers 24, 12, and 13, Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me, if Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold. I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that will I speak. And so we ha- here we are in, in John 11. Caiaphas proposes that Jesus be killed. This wasn't of his own accord because Caiaphas' intentions to kill Jesus are to get rid of a problem. God had already planned, however, before the foundations of the earth that Jesus would die to get rid of the biggest problem. Caiaphas thought his biggest problem was drawing the eye of Rome, like the eye of Sauron going to and fro, lidless, wreathed in flame. Somehow, that, that was a Lord of the Rings thing. But... But, the, but the, the idea is that we can't lose this, and so let's kill him. But Jesus would die to take care of sin and death. And again, God will not be mocked. Caiaphas' wicked words would stand as a marker of what would happen. He sat in the seat of scoffers, refusing to know and understand who who God is and who Jesus, Jesus is. And yet God used him very clearly to bring about his purposes and his plans. That the Son of God would lay down his life for the whole world. Not just the nation of Israel, but the whole world. To gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So what does this mean for us? I just want to give you three things as we wrap up our time together this morning. Three things for us to, for you to consider as we think, as we think about these words that are spoken here. 
The first thing that this passage does is that it reminds us that all human institutions and earthly leaders are subject to King Jesus. No king, no president, no dictator, no one with earthly power is operating outside of God's divine purposes and plans. Maybe you tend to wring your hands over the most recent global developments or elections or decisions that are being made by elected leaders or economic fluctuations. God's at the, God's at the helm. He's not caught off guard by this. The, the hearts of the men and women who are in positions of power in any sphere in our society are like streams of water in the hand of the Lord. Whatever his purposes are, whatever God's purposes are, they will not be disrupted. Whether those who are in power sit in the seat of scoffers, or whether they submit to Jesus Christ as king. One thing that this doesn't mean for Christians is that sometimes I think that we start talking like, God is in control, he's got it under control, he's sovereign over all of this stuff that's happening. Um, One thing that it doesn't mean... um, is some kind of promise of prosperity. God's purposes do not always include flourishing in society. Now, many times they do, but sometimes they do not. In some, in some instances, and actually in lots of instances in the Old Testament, God uses earthly leaders who are opposed to him to bring about judgment on societies. God uses Babylon to carry his own people who have sinned against him by refusing to act justly, by violating God's law over and over and over again. God uses Babylon to carry his own people off in exile because of their sin. He very well might be using any given earthly ruler to be an instrument in his hand, a stream of water in his hand, bringing about the rise and the fall of societies. But Jesus sits on the throne and all societies and all their leaders are subject to him. God will always, though, what this does mean is that God will always preserve his people. Whether they are free to worship, like we are here today, or persecuted or driven underground. Whether God's people are financially prosperous or impoverished, whatever the case, God will. God will always preserve his people. All human institutions and earthly leaders are subject to King Jesus. Second thing for you to note this morning. This passage reminds us of the absolute importance of believing in Jesus as revealed in the Bible. The absolute importance of believing in the Jesus who is revealed in the Bible. The chief priests and the Pharisees failed to acknowledge who Jesus truly is. That's how they sit in the seat of scoffers. They refused to see him as one with the Father, the resurrection and the life. If they had, they wouldn't have feared Rome in the way that they did. And if they had seen Jesus for who he truly is, they would not have killed him. This failure to believe that Jesus revealed in uh, this failure to believe that in the Jesus revealed in the Bible happens in our society also. False pictures of Jesus are all over. 
People claiming the name of Jesus to advance their own personal narratives, own political, own political stances. People claim the name of Jesus, but the Jesus they claim looks very different than the one we're learning about in the Bible. Jesus gives us, Jesus himself gives us the picture of who he is in his word. And to claim anything other than what's revealed about him in the Bible is to sit in the seat of scoffers. In order to say that Jesus is genuinely worthy of our trust, in order to say that Jesus is genuinely worthy of our trust, we must say that Jesus is exactly who he says he is in the Bible. Not what we feel like he is. Not like someone else said he is, but what is revealed to us in Scripture. Because you would not trust someone who lied to you about who they are. We would not trust someone who says something that is false about themselves continually before us. Jesus cannot lie. And so he must take all that he says about himself in Scripture. Jesus is God. But if we get picky and choosy about the things that we accept out of his word, and if we import thoughts and ideas about Jesus from outside Scripture, we ultimately claim that Jesus isn't God and consider ourselves to be God instead. Final thing. I want you to note a beautiful dimension of the gospel. A beautiful dimension of the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came to die for his disciples. He came to die for the chief priests and Pharisees. He came to die for Caiaphas. He came to die for Caesar. He came to die for the most heinous of tyrants. He came to die for the president, the congr- our congressmen, the Supreme Court justices, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. He came to die for people who are impoverished and people who are affluent. He came to die for you and he came to die for me. And the free gift of salvation is given to all those who repent and believe in the Jesus who is revealed by himself to us in the pages of Scripture. Jesus gathers men and women and boys and girls from everywhere. The one man, Jesus Christ, his sacrifice is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. And sometimes we're tempted to wonder if Jesus' sacrifice is for us. Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The blood, sometimes we're tempted. Sometimes we're tempted to wonder if it's for us. If God really knew what he, if if he really knew what I had done, if he could really see those deep, dark corners of my heart, he wouldn't really forgive me. If the blood of Jesus just couldn't cover my sin, I've doubled down time and time again, just like the chief priests and Pharisees. I've refused to see Jesus for who he is revealed in his word. I've ignored what the Bible says about Jesus. I've lived my own way, and I've left 
people in the wake of my sinful, prideful decisions over and over and over again. I've left them broken and hurting. How could Jesus forgive me? But the sacrifice of Christ is for you. It's for you. This is the beautiful dimension of the gospel, that there is nothing that you could, your sin is even more heinous than you know. It's even worse than you can fathom. Your hope isn't that it might be lessened a little bit. Your hope is Jesus Christ. For those who repent and believe, the sacrifice of Jesus gathers into the children of God who are scattered abroad. None is left. None is left out. Jesus' sacrifice is totally effective to bring us into God's family. No matter what's happening in your life, turn from your sin and turn to Christ. If you have never believed, turn from your sin and turn to Christ. If you have believed, if it's been 50, 60 years of believing, turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Sometimes we're tempted to believe, and maybe this is you, that is Jesus' sacrifice sufficient for me? The answer is yes. And if he, he does know what you have done, and he still offers it to you. But note the other side of the coin. We also may be tempted to wonder if Jesus' sacrifice is, this is far more deceptive. This is far sneakier. We may be tempted to wonder if Jesus' sacrifice is for us because we feel like we're doing a pretty good job. You might think that Jesus' sacrifice isn't for you or that you don't need all of it because you're not a filthy sinner like some of these people. You work hard, you pay your bills, you teach your kids about the Bible. You don't drink that much. You don't shout at people who cut you off on the interstate. They can't hear you anyways. But the same prescription is for you. If you think you're like you're doing a pretty good job this morning, turn from your sin. Turn from your self-righteousness. Turn to Jesus Christ. The ugly thought that you're doing pretty good without Christ's sacrifice is personal pride. And in that thought, you sit in the seat of scoffers and you mock God. Because you don't understand his holiness, you don't understand who he truly is, and you don't understand the sacrifice of Jesus. In that, we may be tempted to think, yeah, Jesus needed to die to preserve a way of life for us, but not anything that I've done wrong. Turn from your pride, turn from your scoffing, and turn to Jesus. The gospel is beautiful because it comes to every one of us in this place. Those who think that we cannot possibly be forgiven and those who think that we're doing a pretty good job ourselves. It corrects both of us. It moves us out of the ditch that we're careening towards and towards the, the center line. It is for you no matter what. If you're feeling pretty good about yourself, if you're feeling a little big for your britches this morning, that rod of the gospel is there to correct you. If you're feeling really beat up because of your sin, the gospel is the balm that soothes your wounds. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Turn from your sin and turn to him. His death, the blood that he shed, washes you clean of your sin. The perfect life of obedience that he lived 
The perfect life of obedience is now given to you freely so that you may live in obedience as children to your heavenly Father. Repent and believe. Friends, may we know more fully the Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture and submit to Him fully as Lord. Knowing that one, not one molecule is out of place. Not one event is outside of His control. Not one earthly ruler is out of His hand. But all of these things, and all things, are fully subject to the authority of the Son the King, the Christ, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your word, God, and we thank you for the way in which it comes to us. God, would we be people who love reproof, that love to see Our sin highlighted not because of the sin that comes in the light, but because it gives us great opportunity to run to the Savior, Jesus Christ. God, this morning, in us, in each and every one of us, is there something that is being exposed? God, would we bring it before you? God, would we not double down like the chief priests and the Pharisees, just trying to preserve our way of life, knowing that confessing our sins and believing in Jesus as he is truly revealed in the Bible might disrupt things for us. God, but will you see that at your right hand is fullness of joy and that there is no way to have that lest we repent and believe. Would we trust Jesus? and his all-sufficient sacrifice for us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.